Gaming Gaming NBS episode 146 coming to you June 27th 2017 Welcome to Gaming NBS, a tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, folks. Sean, that was a neat little intro there. You even named the, the day, that the year. That's kind of neat. We don't normally do that. Well, I think, above it's beyond, some, I think it's something long overdue because our episodes are obviously not evergreen, which means we whoa, refer whoa, whoa, to whoa, things. Whoa. Our, wisdom, our wisdom is for the ages. I don't see how that could... Our wisdom, maybe, <laughs> but we talk a lot of things that have dates to them, like That's a good Kickstarters point. and yes. events. And then we say, hey, we're going to be at Origins. And, and somebody in two years from now is going to go, dude, I'm at Origins. Where's Brett? Yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> so we don't we don't really uh, express the date very often. It so might be a good way, though, to dodge the people who can't stand us. I'm going to Origins. You're going to punch that fucker right in the face. Well, that's show very, that's just, yeah, that's we could run them around on wild goose chases. That's true. Exactly. That's a tactic. Anyway, here we are. Here we are indeed. <sighs> Let's see. Announcements. We have, as usual, the uh, the submissions for game, running games at GameWolcon is open. You want to run games under the Gaming BS banner? Let us know. That would be great. I got both of mine in. My stuff is running on Friday. I have a Wraith game and a um, Avalon, uh, Streets of Avalon game. Um, I'm hoping I can do uh, something for the kids' track and maybe get another game in. However, with the fickleness of the uh, U.S. military and when they run their basic training for my son's uh, Air Force basic, I don't know when he's going to get out, and i got to make sure I go to his graduation. So we'll see what that does for my planning. But, Sean, did you you got one in, didn't you? I did get one in. Well, there you go. Uh, That's nice. I was holding things up, apparently, and so I got I got one in. I will submit another one, but I don't know where that'll land on the grid because I think Josh was waiting for Brett and I because he wanted to make sure he put us in a proper spot and all this stuff. So well, it'll comes be fine. We've, we've got some yeah. seminars we want to record, you know, if Ed Greenwood's talking or if like last year we were lucky enough to catch Monty Cook and folks like that. So it's always good to have. Right. Um, so, so I am going to submit a second one, which is going to be. Tales from the Loop, you know, role playing in the eighties that wasn't was. exactly that never was. That's right. It'll be fun. So if you're a child of the eighties, you're gonna love that game. So let's see here. As far as game will come goes, I do believe that you can. They did. They did the uh, VIG renewal stuff. I think a couple people, friends of the show, grabbed a few of the remaining VIG openers and registration itself started this last Saturday at noon. So we can get your badges. So now when Sean tells you to get your ass to game hole, you, you, there's no excuse. Go out there at gameholecon.com and get your goddamn badge. What the hell are you waiting for? My understanding is the VIG badges went in like 20 seconds. Yes, I do believe that is true. I saw somebody had tweeted at um, camera was like, so were there actually any there? He's like, yeah, they went immediately. So there were, I think people just hovering over their mouse as soon as it went, went click. So anyway, that's cool. I mean, you know, good on Gamehole to have a really kick-ass event that people want to go to like that. So, and really cool for our gamers and uh, that want to support the convention and uh, throw a little extra coin at them and have some fun. So that's all good. 
Yeah, so if you haven't listened to the show before and you're wondering what we're talking about, it's a gaming convention in Madison, Wisconsin that happens the first weekend of November. We will be there in full force. Uh, we will offer free beer on Saturday night of the con. It is a three-and-a-half-day con, which starts Thursday night, all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, they have a, a exhibit hall with uh, your favorite vendors offering their wares for sale. There's going to be plenty of guests of honor and guests of honor at Gamehole Con are, you know, they, they put up a lot of those guests. And so in return, they make those guests run games. So they will be, you know, hosting games, whether they be board games or role-playing games. So you'll be able to play with some of your favorite industry individuals, um, superstars. And even if you don't get to play with them because you, you don't get in on the game or whatever, it's a requirement to be a guest at GameholeCon that you roam the halls and make yourself available. That's how I grabbed Jonathan Tweet and just bullshitted with him for a half hour the one year he was there. And uh, <clears throat> Frank Metzner, just people like that you can run into, and they'll, they're great people. They'll, the men and women there, they'll make time, they'll talk with you. It's cool. And you should tell them all about your character. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> one of my, so quick aside, I saved an artist at Gen Con a number of years ago. He was at his booth, and there was a guy who was insisting on telling him all about his half drow, half demon pirate, who looked just like the painting, but kind of different and sort of the same. And it was like, I wanted to look at the guy's stuff and buy something. And he had this look in his eyes. The artist was like, save me. So I stepped up and I said, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but are all of these on sale in the bin? Are prices is marked? He goes, oh, yes, why? And he came right over. And then we engaged in useless art selling banter for five minutes until the other guy left. So that was that was nice. And then he gave me an, he offered to give me a really nice deal in the print I wanted. But I'm like, dude, it's only 25 bucks. I'll just buy it. So, so that's the story. That's the story Brett's using to help deal <laughs> With him getting rejected by talking to an artist Shut up, about you. his character. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's how his therapist has said, Brett? Just tell maybe. people. This is what you happened. Can- <laughs> and no one will know the difference. It'll all be fine. Just this is how you could deal with it. Just tell them that you were the one that saved. Yeah. You weren't the guy who, who needed saving from. You were the guy who helped save anyway. Ah, Anyways, just, just for that, let's go to random encounter before. Yeah, let's go to random encounter. All right, random encounter. So we're going to talk about feedback from episode one forty-five, which was the one prior to this one that dealt with pre-gens versus roll your own with zip zaps. Zip zaps. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Squaresville. Anyway, just for that, you read the first one. <laughs> Jared Rasher. My first time running any games at a convention was for Pathfinder Society in 2008 on the ground floor. So that was a bit of a trial by fire. That said, no pre-gens to worry about since it was an organized play program. The next few years when I ran games for the local convention, Winter War, I was also running Pathfinder Society. Although by this time, there were special legal pre-gens that players could use. I just shifted away from Pathfinder Society, and since that time, I've run an entire weekend of Marvel Heroic pre-gens, which is pretty standard for that game, and that uh, and the last few years I've run Powered by the Apocalypse games all weekend. Honestly, I think part of why I really like running Powered by the Apocalypse, Apocalypse games for conventions is due to the fact that you can have people make their own characters within the game session and still have time to run the game. I have a hard enough time forcing myself to come up with multiple adventure ideas and printing out all of the handouts that I need for players 
I don't want to use up limited brain power on pregens as well. I also ran a couple of slots of Shadow of the Demon Lord one year, but I furiously looked up some pregens online because I didn't want to mess with it myself, which is a good point. So if you're looking at running a game uh, and you're kind of like, oh, there's some footwork that needs to be done, you could always try Googling it and seeing if somebody else is offering pregens and just use those. Or pull a Brett and uh, tell a person in your party that, hey, I don't have time to make a character. I want to outsource this sucker. <laughs> might be able to get some that player in your group who loves making characters. He might go crazy for you. That's right. That's what Brett did for my Star Wars game, lazy bastard. Or you could, or you could take it like somewhat to what Brett's saying is just run a home game, then go, hey, I need copies of all your characters, <laughs> and then just use your your home group's player characters as NPCs or pregens. Yeah, that could work. I like that. I like that idea. Um, <laughs> I also ran a couple. Oh, okay. I have run one shots of fifth edition D and D and Fate at the FLGS and had the players make their own characters. But in those cases, I usually had a more nebulous time slot than I do at a convention. Five, maybe six hours, where nobody was using tables, so we could afford uh, to blow two hours and get lunch before the official start time. I also ran a DC adventure one shot where I just told the players to pick a famous DC hero from the books and they would play them. I think the last time I can remember making a fairly large number of pregens was when I was running multiple Savage Worlds one-shots after I moved away from Pathfinder. Love the one-shots, but I hated making up all those characters. It's probably because I do start making pregens. I try to figure out what the best spread of characters and skills will be and have enough variety that people will find something they want, and I overproduce them and drive myself crazy over it. I've run about five funnels for DCC and two of them turned into short campaigns. And both of those times I made a stack of zero level pregens from purple sorcerer. And if you, uh, you know, go to John Mars, uh, purple sorcerer, I think, is it purple sorcerer.com or purple sorcerer games.com, but Google it. It's a great resource. He's, you know, given us PDFs we've given out for contests and, um, certainly give him some love. Continuing on, sorry, I had to just plug that. I think that it feels different for DCC to use something someone else made for you just because the assumed standard character creation is supposed to be completely random anyway. You customize your character by figuring out which of your level zeros you actually like and role-playing the rest of them as being amazingly brave for their lack of skills. So, yeah, no, that's one thing we didn't mention, Brad, is... um, Shoot! Just mentioned, flew right out of my head, but it was something that Jared mentioned or alluded to, which was what? Um, oh, for freaking Pete's sake! It was the um, where did he go? He he tweaked my brain when he said something. I think oh, uh, pregens creation. You know, when I was multiple Savage Worlds one shots, loved you know blah blah. blah. I hated making all the characters. I know one thing you could. You could also do is, um, I have Hero Lab. Yes. And Hero Lab is pretty slick. Uh, it does cost some money, and it also depends on how many different mods you buy. Like, so Hero Lab software you can get. Um, it runs on Mac and Windows, uh, PC. But, you know, if you get a generator, you can just make up characters. It's relatively quick. It keeps track of the points and has all the rules and the feats and the hindrances. And depending on what system you're using, they do have some that you can buy. 
can get pretty pricey if you're starting to buy multiple systems and multiple add-ons like Pathfinder. They've got the entire Pathfinder catalog in there and you can add all the rules from every book that they ever put out. Um, but it does cost you based on some of those books because they have to pay Paizo when they license them. But well, anyways, there's, lot, there's awesome tools out there that will help you yes. make pregens faster, essentially. Right. Like Purple Sorcerer Games for DCC. Man, the zero level generator is like a godsend. What? You just whip out how many you want and it just, boom, spits them all out. It's good stuff. So yeah. wait, well, thank you, Jared. Yep. All right, let's see who's uh, Michael Parker. Michael says, pregens are great for one-shots and cons when character creation for a given system requires a lot of strategic thinking, lo- loading up on equipment, background building, etc. D&D is a great example. From running a high-level one-shot, say the Tomb of Horrors, where players will need something like 12-level characters, creating those PCs could take well over an hour and a, and a half or two. Can I say Nightmare. Nightmare. Um, I'm going to want a pregen for most games, honestly, unless character creation is part of the actual game. Great examples would be Fiasco. It's light, easy, and integral to the game itself. I never played uh, Power by the Apocalypse games before, but as you guys mentioned it in the episode, I understand that playbooks make character creation a breeze. Yes, they do, Michael. I've uh, played um, played a couple, and playbooks make it just fast. It's pretty damn simple, in my opinion. He goes on to say, a good rule of thumb might be that if character creation is going to take more than 10 to 15% of the allotted time for a game session, pre-gens are probably the way to go. So far or slot, 30 minutes max. With that in mind, maybe hybrid approach is a best-of-both-worlds scenario. Come to the table with a stack of pre-gens, <clears throat> but on each one, leave a few things open for the players to decide in the first 15 to 30 minutes. Use these choices as an opportunity to get players talking to each other at the table, not just a way to make characters their own mechanically. Uh, an example, for Savage Worlds, provide pre-gens with everything ready to go except for one edge and one hindrance. For 5e, maybe leave the bonds and flaws up to the players. These are things that could spark conversation help build a cohesive party while not taking up a ton of time-crunching numbers. And that's honestly, uh, Michael, that's the thing I did when I gave my Iron Shoes um, con game a run at Origins with Angela and a few others, and it worked really well. I left a few bits of background open. I had some, it was 5e, so it was like Bonds and Flaws, some of that was there, just to kind of give them the high-level flavor direction, but then asked them a few specific personal questions about how they know each other and what they think about the neighborhood and all that type of stuff. And that did help. It was like, you know, a half hour of that discussion between the five players. Excuse me, four players. And it went really well, though. And it did help make those characters more theirs than um, they felt like, at least I believe, that Ange and the rest of the crew, they had a chance to buy into the characters because they helped put the finishing touches on it. You know, that final coat of paint. So it was pretty cool. Carlin of the Hill People Kendrick chimes in. As someone who runs Savage Worlds one-shots with different themes every month for almost two years at my FLGS, I have only one piece of advice for GMs handing out pre-gens. Put edges, hindrances, feats descriptions on a separate card explaining what they do. So he's specifically commenting to Michael because of the Savage Worlds piece, which is definitely the case. Um and which is nice because Hero Lab, I'm, uh, or even just the the scenario I'm running from, um, just imagine, just your imagination or use your imagination. Um, they put all the info of your hindrances and edges on the character sheet, so you know what it's supposed to do. Um, so even if you're running like, I mean, maybe five e. Dungeons and Dragons or a game that's maybe not as clear cut, um, and there's some things that you know, names like hindrances, right? It may just say what it is, but it doesn't say what it does. So you got to kind of list that stuff. So something to keep in mind. 
uh, continuing on with Carlin, too many times I've had the first 15 minutes to half hour of the game time eaten up by book flipping to figure out what the funny sounding edges feats do because, let's face it, not everyone memorizes game books. Side note, and if you have memorized the book, please wear a foil hat so we know who you are. <laughs> so, so take the time to make a Google Doc with the edges feats hindrances for each character, what they do, and why they matter thematically to the character. For example, a character who has the mean hindrance and the two-fisted edge explain in the mean hindrances description that the character has a very short fuse and then explain in the two-fisted edge that when that fuse is lit, the character goes all out on the offender and how that works with the rules. Just his two cents. You know, that's similar to what we've talked about in the player series, right? If you have a character that is a thief, how do I backstab people? You should fucking know that. If you're a game master, you're going to run a game, and the main fight, or you're like, hey, this con game is a big battle over a raging river, and you don't know the fucking swimming and drowning rules. You moron. (laughs) You know, get that stuff figured out. It's part and parcel with that. If you're giving out powers to people, at least be able to explain them quickly, easily, or if you've got the time and ability to do so, print uh, print something out and staple it to that character sheet when you hand it to the player. I like that idea. Yeah, the game cons, you got to kind of sometimes lead them because you're not probably dealing with a lot of people that know some of those rules like the back of their hand. But very good point, Brett. Yep. All right, next up is Matt Martinez. As for pregens, I prefer using them when I run one-shots. I think character generation takes way too long for one-shots for a lot of games. When I played a con game of masks, character generation took about an hour of a four-hour time slot. I've also found that 5e character gen can take an hour or more. You know, I think I think some of that we could easily, I think if Matt and I were to sit down and say, well, yeah, but you could have a group. <clears throat> some people make characters faster. Yeah, that is true. But I think Matt's counter would be, depending what the description for the game is, you could say, hey, you should be familiar with the game system. Somebody shows up, and maybe they lied, and they don't know shit about the game system. Game Master's not going to kick him out, or if it's open to all comers. And if somebody's, yeah, I've played Masks before, but it was, God, it was a year ago. I haven't played it for a while. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth. In quite, some people just flat take longer to go through character gen than other folks. And... um you can only go as fast as the slowest man in the in the uh, in the marching line, right? <clears throat> Any military person will tell you that. So the game can't start until you're all done. So uh, Matt's point is, I think, well taken. Uh, Gabe Dibbing says on topic, wondering what you guys would think about my approach for two games I'm designing for convention play. One game uses the esoteric Yggdrasil system, and uh, the other the brand new and fairly crunchy Modifius 2D20 Conan system. Thinking about it, I decided that a major aspect of any game is the choices one makes at the very beginning while creating a character. Part of how one performs in an adventure is contingent on character build and relying on GM build depends too much on how the GM believes the game challenges should be overcome. Hmm. But I anticipate and agree with everyone that, at the convention table, full character creation can be onerous and time-consuming. My solution is simplification. Not to get into the nitty-gritty here, but I simplify character creation by handing players a range of numbers to plug into slots. I'm also consequently simplifying gameplay by limiting skill options and trimming away feats and other little mechanics. MAME is for just about everything that a player needs to know to both play and build their characters to be in the character sheets I hand them. I feel this might be an acceptable compromise. I think many people sign up for a game because they want to try out the system, having never played before. This would give them a feel of how character creation works in the system, which is not which not only is essential to the full game experience, but also is a natural introduction to the system itself. 
but I also intend to minimize the cruncher aspects, the quote-unquote add-ons to a core game mechanics, if you will, to more effectively empower players during gameplay. Swords and Wizardry Light provides a good example of what I have in mind. You know, Gabe, I think that that's it. <clears throat> if that's working, I think that's a really good idea, right? And what I think you need to do is you can tell people, like, look, I've, you know, we're building characters. Um, I don't necessarily want, I'm playing a stripped-down version of Modifius's 2D20 or a stripped-down version of Yggdrasil. Um, you don't have to say that. You could just say, look, you know, these are the things that fit. In some way, telling the, telling the players, your crew, like, look, ladies and gentlemen, here's how we're going to do it. And um, these are the ones that fit. I've trimmed away all the things that don't fit this environment for this particular adventure. Off you go. And that does definitely help because instead of um, throwing the nightmare stack of, you know, Riff's books in front of them and saying, hey, pick something, um, that can take far too long. So helping to guide them by providing a box for them to play and all the plastic dinosaurs are in the box, it's up to them to decide which ones they want. I like that idea. That's pretty cool. Stefan Dragonspawn. Hello, you sexy BSers. Well, he and I did spend time at a bar together, so things were things were said. Anyway, carry on. First off, I want to say how much I enjoyed spending some time with you, Brett, and talking nerdy to each other. Well, there you go. Next, next time, bring sh- next <laughs> time bring Sean in his assless pants, and I will definitely be there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Do it! Yeah, man. Now I know how to get now I know how to get Stefan Dragon spawned a game hole con. There you go. Second, about pregens versus roll up your own from episode 145. I have a few opinions. A few years ago I met Eric Lemaru online for a one shot of Beasts and Barbarians. The characters were all pre-gens and we had a blast, despite the fact that this was the first time we had all met each other. The tone was set by my priest character when he threw a bucket of poop as an agility trick at the head of an ogre-like monster. Things went quickly wonky, but great fun was had by all. This was supposed to be just to just be a one-shot, but became a long-running campaign because of the chemistry between all of us. Eric had us use the same pre-gens for this campaign, but we were able to switch it up. I chose a Conan-like barbarian warrior, and as the story progressed, we all developed our characters beyond the PC sheet. We all took the characters as they were and added cool background and personality quirks. So, this is one example where pre-gens worked well even for a long-running game. I loved playing Kron, the noble warrior. Eric often remarked how just when, th- uh, just when he thought he knew my character, I would do something that made his dis made his discover new facets of Kron. I guess having a character already written up kind of forced me to think more about the personality and look beyond the stats. Maybe that would not have happened if I had rolled up my own character. Who knows? Lastly, congrats on another great episode. Don't roll your zip zaps too tightly and conversely, make sure your chaps are strapped on tight. Well, that's true. You don't want chaps to fall off. No, you don't. Because, I mean... They're covering so much. It's just, well, it's uncomfortable. That <laughs> too. Uh, P.S. Would it be possible for you to pimp out my good friend, Jamie Pearson's podcast, The RPG Brewery? Jeez, this guy. He freaking gets Jamie to like recruit Brett to be a goddamn guest on there. And now <laughs> he wants me to announce the show again. Yeah, we shouldn't do that. Oh, wait. Damn it. We already have. Oh, you tricky dragon spawn, you. Jeez, that guy. It's a, a big. 
Go yeah. ahead, go ahead, go ahead. It's uh, which is a big weekly show. Uh, he records and broadcasts live on every other Tuesday. Thanks in advance. Yours without wax, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen Dragon Spawn. Oh, that guy's a I fucking did. riot, man. <laughs> he's, he's, he was a blast to hang out with both he and Eric Lamoureux. They were they were really cool. But I'll tell you the uh, Jamie does a really good job with an interview. It's an interview type of format. He's had Ken Height, me, clearly. I mean, uh, on equals right there. Uh, no, I'm kidding. He's had some pretty good guests on there. So check it out. Go through it. Uh, Jamie's podcast is a lot of fun. I really. He was just. He was a hoot to hang out with. So he's a good guy. And if nothing else, he deserves a listen. See what you think. He's good people. Yeah, Jamie was on. Uh... He was on a different podcast before that one, I think. <clears throat> yes, he was. He mentioned to me, and I cannot remember. It was what a that savage. Was. It was a Savage Worlds podcast. I can't remember the name of it. Yes, it's one. Yeah, I think the one savage. Eric is on now, actually. Yes, could be. Could well be. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Stefan, and we'll move on to Michael Drescher. He emailed us and said, "Hey guys, been a while since I wrote in. However, I think I've gotten something discussion worthy Sto- uh, story to game balance." A weekly fake core game set in a dystopian underground bunker owned by corporations. They saved a large swath of people from the nuclear end of days. More importantly, as the acting government, they steal citizens and run experiments on them, which is where our PCs come in. The group began with no skills or abilities to represent their amnesia. As they tried to do things, they'd fill in their skills from the top with uh, <coughs> excuse me, fill in their skills from the top rating down. The idea being their best skill would be, of course, the first thing that they try as their memory slowly come back. The group is being hunted by the corporations, being pushed around by a supposed resistance effort, and threatened by the Thieves' Guild of the city-state. There's much political intrigue, deception, and alliances. Naturally, this leads to an oppressive environment designed to emulate the atmosphere of being lost, confused, and dystopia. All that said, what when does confused players stop being a good story-setting emulation and start being a drag on players' good time? Do you pull the plug on the mysteries and intrigue? Is it its attempt? It's a tempestuous world of, with many faces. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Stay awesome. Thanks. Oh, that's a good one, Michael. You know, we've talked a little bit about <clears throat> kind of mystery, intrigue, horror, and so forth. But this is an interesting concept of when confusion and frustration on the player's part can be fun for a while. But when, if it wears thin, what do you do? How do you keep it from, how do you either keep it fresh and so forth? So, Sean, I think I'm going to throw this in the hopper. Get to the hopper. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any initial thoughts on it? Initial thoughts, I would say you got to not drag the unknown out too long. I think you got to at, at at some point start spoon feeding the party a lot of the details because what you may think is like, oh, I want a little bit more of that intrigue and mystery and them not knowing. They start turning into. God damn it, I don't know what the hell's going on. And it goes on and on and on and on. So don't be afraid to really put a lot of that stuff out there. It doesn't have to be all in one, you know, all the party members are in one room and then you just, they come across the book and it explains it all. But I do think you have to get things moving relatively quick um, because, yeah, they'll get frustrated because they're, because you, you're not giving them enough, and they don't know what to do, and they don't know where to go, they don't know who to turn to, things like that, and that can drive player characters nuts. No, agreed, absolutely agreed. There's and there's 
your group, if you know your group, they'll have different tolerance, tolerances for that. As I've said before, I've got some players in my group that don't mind an anticlimactic ending. And I know other people are like, ah, oh, that sucked. What do you mean it's an anticlimactic ending? And some people don't mind being frustrated or confused for half a game session and want answers by the end. God damn it. Um, so there's a bit of that in there, too. So, Michael, I've got that added in the hopper. If it's not next, it will not be next week, but it'll be the week after, most likely. So we'll be chatting through this one. Thank you, sir. Jared Lytle on player fight facing die rolls. So we're going back a few on this one, but I wanted to get Jared's out there. Hey, BSers. First, I just want to say how proud and how sorry I am to have contributed to the entire episode accent. That said, as always, I really enjoyed listening. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to it, go and check that out. I did an entire episode in an accent. Thank you, you Jared Lytle. You, Jared, and two other people enjoyed listening to that episode. Hey. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. I just wanted to chime in on the player facing die player facing roles topic. I've been running a curse of Strahd game roughly every other week since Halloween of last year. And I've implemented player facing defense roles in place of the monsters making attacks, particularly for five E my group has found this to be a massive success. Here are some specifics, comments and caveats. All right. So some some people really appreciated this and they're going to implement them. So uh, take some notes if you're interested in just a different. So if this appeals to you, rewind and then take down the notes. By player, and I have a link in the show notes. So just click on that and you'll get all this. By player facing defense roles, I am only referring to replacing my monster NPC attack roles, which target characters and require a traditional attack role. Okay, that's the precursor there. Initially, I had also attempted to allow players to make spell overcome rolls to determine if their spells, which ordinarily require saving throws from NPCs, were successful. My players were neutral on that change, but I personally did not like it. At the end of the day, I know it's just a mental shell game, but for me, I still needed a mental distinction between something like a Scorching Ray, caster makes attack roll against an AC, and Fireball, where the caster targets the area effect, then everyone in it makes rolls to save. It's equal parts logistical. I find it weird to have a caster roll a spell overcome roll against every target, which implies the caster's skill or effectiveness is impacting their ability for the spell to take effect. And mathematical, it's a weirder slash larger set of numbers to modify, quote-unquote, on creature stat blocks on my side of the screen. Um, far and away, next point, the biggest perk is that it keeps players getting better engaged during combat when it isn't their turn. I've been running for a large group, eight players, so even our efficient combats can take more than 20 minutes between actions by any given player. Knowing they'll be rolling their def own defense rolls during the NPC turns really keeps everyone engaged. Point. Next point. Another huge perk is all is that it turns defense tank character builds into a much more active experience. Playing the high AC character who takes the dodge action using the standard rules as written is frankly boring. User play using player facing die rolls, all of a sudden you get to roll every time a beastie attacks you, and if you dodged, you get to roll with advantage. It feels fun for the players. Next point, efficiency is also a benefit. I'm not scrambling for dice. 
I had one combat where I had 15 wolves attack the PCs. I split up the attacks and I could just go around the table and say, all of you make two defense rolls. You three make three. Your target number is 16. That was way faster resolution. Next point, using the average monster damage on attacks is what really lets you reap the full benefit of this efficiency. But some people might not love that. Some players think it feels sterile, so it could be an opportunity for the DM to roll damage, but they only have to do it on the attacks that hit. So just a heads up, the Unearthed Arcana has the math wrong. Per that article, it says that the way to do it is to have the PC subtract 10 from their armor class to find their defense bonus, then to add 11 to the monster to hit modifier to determine the defense DC. This isn't right. DMs would need to add 12 instead of 11 to the monster to hits, if you'll permit a little boring explanation. The reason Watsi has to add says to add 11 to the monster to hit bonus is, in theory, to account for the fact that the average roll on a d20 is 10.5. Attackers, therefore, are designed to get an extra 0.5 edge when making attacks. So by switching the d20 to the player side, you have to make a full plus one shift. Ooh, boy. However, what that logic fails to consider is the aggressor wins ties component of attacks. In order to keep the math the same, you actually need to add 12. This accounts for both the D20 average to 10.5 and the switch to having the defender roll. Here's the math for an example. Assume a monster with a plus 4 to hit against the character with a 15 armor class. With traditional attacker rolls, this monster would hit 50% of the time, right? Which is a, an a 11 or higher on a D20 roll. Using defense rolls, as Watsi suggests, the player would be rolling with plus 5 against the DC of 15, which would mean they actually only get hit 45% of the time. Player-facing defense rolls are not a panacea, but my group has certainly found them very rewarding. Uh, I encourage you to at least give it a try. Side note, I've tried loads of other house rules, and this was the best one to stick. I've done some other things with how to use inspiration. I've done use uh, I've done using dice instead of static proficiency bonus, etc. Without a doubt, this was the resounding favorite. I'm happy to share more on my other experience if people care to read it. Wow. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, and so if you didn't catch every minutia, I will link in the show notes. I believe his post is public and you'll just be able to go on Google Plus and actually read that in its entirety, which really sounds pretty freaking cool. Yeah, it's really neat. I like it. It um, I suck at math, but it appears well thought out. And uh, even with my English and philosophy background, it sounds like the math works. So I fuck, it might be worth a try, man. Yeah. I like it. Thank, thank you, everybody, for writing in this week. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Definitely good stuff. Good stuff to chew on. Let's get into the main topic. All right, Brett. 
All right. So one of the listeners of the show, Walt, wrote us in a while back and gave us this tale. He said, uh, over the weekend, he runs a 5e adventure. I'm going to paraphrase a bit here with a group of friends. Got some seven level characters, uh, excuse me, seven third level characters, some barbarians, a paladin, a rogue, a druid, a monk, and a cleric sorcerer. He's a newer DM, he says, and um, he's been using some of the different tips and tricks he's picked up from us and others. And one of the things that he said was uh, while preparing the adventure, he used a uh, a system, a Cobalt Fight Club. I've heard about that before, never used it myself. The result said that this encounter would be a hard encounter, which is just what he wanted, right? He wanted challenging but not deadly. Fortunately, when they actually get to the table, he tells us the party breezes through all the bad guys. And then he talks to players afterwards, and they all said they had fun, but hey, that was a little boring. We need a little more challenge there. And he says, you know, admittedly, he had some horrible die rolls on his part, and he feels he could have done a better job running the baddies. And he's wondering if we had any thoughts around tactical combat, books, websites, videos, and so forth, anything like that we could recommend. So I thought we would at least start with... um, some basic concepts of things that Sean and I have done. And maybe uh, we've had a couple um, listeners chime in a few things. We may or may not get to all those. If nothing else, we will make sure we get to those next week. But um, Sean, have you had that problem? Uh, have you had that problem with tactical combat where you need to, if you have a tactical combat last more than four hours, see your doctor. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've had, I think he's to the contrary, right? The uh, <laughs> Exactly. I have I have not had my tactical combat last more than four hours and would not tell a friend. <laughs> um, so seriously, though, with uh, that was a horrible joke. Sorry, I'm tired. Um, with tactical combat, there is there's definitely a um a knack or a, a knack to it, if you will, or different tricks and things. Have you run into that issue? Where you're like, this is gonna be a tough encounter, and then your crew just blows through. You're like, son of a bitch, that was easy. Story story of my life, Brett. <laughs> Every time. So, I mean, is it common? Is it, it common for you? It is more common than probably not, which kind of aggravates the crap out of me. Because one of the things I'm conscious of is putting the, the hammer down on the players too too heavily. Like I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to nuke all the players, even though I really do. I mean, I do, but I don't. I mean, I even have some sense of control, Brett. No, you don't. I do though. But they they do. I mean, it's uh, you think you've got a decent setup, whether it's written in a pre-published adventure, or you come up with it on your own, or you go through some type of method like CR, and you're like, nope, this is supposed to be balanced, balanced, right? This may go to balance, but I don't know if we want to get into that. But regardless, you feel as though the adventure encounter is what it is. Um, so here's one thing we should also. Um, stream of conscious one thing we should point out brad is you are not a fan of balance no not necessarily i'm not a huge fan of overly balanced encounters like doing the math to say oh this is a i've got x number i've got seven third level players i need da 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 da. this equals i need a cr eight to make this balanced that's not a thing i do so we are we are going to we're let's so let's preface all this with we're not really getting into the balance piece. So we know that that is a piece and a component of how an encounter is built to be challenging. Yep, it can but be. this is, so we're going to take the, okay, we're going to take the standard CR. We're going to take the, what we think is fair for a combat encounter so that the players will be compelled. They can even, they can feel as though they should run but they know that they think they have a chance 
to win the combat. So they are encouraged to engage. Yeah. Is that fair? I think that's fair. We'll touch on CR in a bit, but I think, honestly, um, one of the things, just a, a short story, which I one of my favorite ones, is I had a group of guys I used to run for a few jobs ago, and they had some of the best rules lawyers I've ever met as far as knowing every in and out of D&D 3.0, 3.5, and Pathfinder. They could make the min-max god, goddess-type character. It was fucking amazing. And I could throw a CR4 at them when CR4 was the legitimate level, and it would destroy it. Just destroy it. I learned yeah. if I didn't go two CRs higher, at least, they ate it. And the reason I used the CR system at the time was because I wanted to... I look at a monster, oh, this sounds like, this sounds like a cool monster. I think this should be a fun challenge. And even though I don't believe necessarily in making sure everything's balanced and perfectly fair, blah, blah, blah. Seeing that CR number on there saying, oh, it's a CR2 creature. All right, yeah, yeah, doesn't have a lot of hit points, doesn't hit that hard. Yeah, you're right. Probably won't be much of a challenge for these 8th level players. Good point. Maybe have them have these guys be some mooks or something. So sometimes that CR, seeing that listed for a, a creature or any kind of reference point to say how tough the monster is in relevance to the quote-unquote average party, can be very handy. And then you can scale it up or down from there. <coughs> but I well, you, I guess. Oh, sorry. So I guess what I just said was, uh, say, oh, well, fuck it then. I guess we are going to include CR. No, I'm just, I'm just saying that that that's kind of a that's <laughs> it's just a piece. It's not the main. It's not the main thrust of the discussion. I don't believe. So. No. No. So here we go. I th- honestly think is we've talked about knowing the rules and reading the rules and so forth. But I'll tell you what, you need as the game master, if you want to have really good tactical combat, you need to really understand the rules for tactical combat in your game. If you're playing D&D, you're playing Pathfinder, how do <clears throat> what what does a disengage action do? What do all the different actions do? Um attack of opportunity, flank, all of those things. If nothing else, watch what your players have done to your monsters and say, wow, they flanked the living shit out of those goblins. That should have been a tough encounter. They fucking murdered them all because they really utilized flank really well. Guess what? The orcs aren't stupid. They should start using flank. Um, look at those rules and really understand what all the different components are. There will be pieces that the group will shy away from. And even you, I mean, I, I've talked about this before on the show is I don't, a grapple rules. I always go, Ugh, grapple, but, uh, it might be worth a look. What are the group tactics? What are swarming tactics? It doesn't come up often, you know, perhaps in your game, look for those rules for combat and figure out how they function and what, and how you would utilize them. Another good story I have is I had a, I had a uh, player character of my player of mine made an NPC he was going to play in a game designed to be the leader of this band of gnolls is going to fight the players. And he made a guy who was like this knoll barbarian who could sunder the living shit out of everything. He had the sunder feature, basically breaking weapons, breaking shields, and breaking armor. And he did that specifically because he said, this guy is just a big bruiser who smashes the living shit out of everything. I've never, for whatever reason, as a game master, ever used sunder. Duh. So he sundered the shit out of the player characters. Magic swords are breaking. Armor's getting rended. And I'm like, wow. Talk about a fucking equalizer. Holy crap. That's a nasty thing. Know those rules and understand what all those components do. Then you can utilize them better in combat. And I honestly believe when you watch your players, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, as they say. And if your players are 
flanking the living crap out of them, surprise attacking everybody. Um, they're utilizing reach weapons. You know, hey, I've got a long spear. That means I've got a 10-foot reach, and it takes them five feet to get in. i got an extra move, blah, blah, blah. Whatever those tactical components are that the players are using, those are absolutely 100% available for you and all the bad guys. Sean, what are you thinking? True story, man. Yeah? Do you do, you do that? Do you utilize the same? I mean, from your playing experience, when you game master, do you use the same type of uh, combat things? Like if you like, hey, yeah. flank is a big deal. Do you go for flanks and stuff? Yeah, you. D- I do, but many times I'm up against players or a player that knows the rules and the tactical pieces better than I do, which is fine, but it's just something to be aware of. So um, if you have that imbalance in your group, inevitably it is going to tilt towards the player that knows those things. So you, Brett's right. You gotta you gotta know those you gotta know those details, or you have to be able to just have a group that is open to you making rulings, um, rather than than really to the T. Right? If yep. you know them like the back of your hand, that's great. But if you get neener neener guy at the table, that's gonna ma- manipulate the crap, and they may be legit. Right? They're they are playing within the boundaries of the rules. Yeah, that's another thing. So I think what I am trying to say and what I'm trying to articulate is that if you are playing a tactical game, you're going to have to expect to either be tactical minded in your own uh, competency or expect a player to trump you. And if a player trumps you, you're going to, they may hand you your ass when it has to do with that encounter and that NPC. Now, and and they if they, as long as they're playing within the boundaries of the rules and they love that stuff, then that's why they probably excel at it. And if that's not your bag, and that's going to be a problem for you, then you're going to be on two different playing fields. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think if you are if you have <clears throat> the other thing now is when we talk about the rules, like hey, these are the tactical rules, and I'm picking on Pathfinder because it's the one I'm most familiar with for very tactical. Um. I have five foot reach. I've got fifteen foot reach. I've got this movement. I've got this feet bucket of stuff I can do, and these extra features and free actions and all this other crap. Knowing all those stuff, it's a lot. It's a lot to know. And one of the advantages that the players have is there's four to five of them, possibly, or maybe more, or even if there's fewer, there's at least two on one. In most cases, they get to put their head heads together, and you have just you. So if you are doing this, one thing to do is when you Build your bad guys. If you have a band of orcs or hobgoblins or even a lich or whatever it is, um, sort out what the main types of attack, what's cool about this bad guy. Um, in this case, I mentioned with the knoll. This knoll sunders the crap out of the PCs. He goes after the guy with the biggest weapon, the coolest magic thing, and goes to break that shit so they can't use it. Oh, Dylan, man, there is... Sorry. Nothing, there is nothing more that will piss off your player characters than you get a sunder, like a master sunderer, oh, yeah. and all they do is start breaking all their shit. Yeah. But <laughs> you fucking get pissed off. Well, you know, and I, I learned it when I watched my players start doing it. I'm like, wow, that's pretty fucking handy. You just sundered this, <laughs> this blade off this death knight. All right, then, motherfucker, here's what's coming. So, you know, and <laughs> finding out what the swarm tactics are and having, you know, a you know, a, a mob of 15 goblins take down that 10th level paladin. That's, that's pretty satisfying. Um, 
<laughs> grappling rules and those type of things. But where I'm getting at is if you have a bad guy, your group has specialized people. They have the wizard, the cleric, and so on. Your orcs, your plebeians like that, you've got these little bitty people, or these basic, you know, no, nah, they're nothing that tough. Or even the ogres, yeah, they're big, whatever. Put an orc shaman in there with some healing powers. If there is any magical loot that the bad guys have, especially monsters, any intelligent humanoid or any intelligent monster, if they can use it, they're going to fucking use it. If they have a, if there's a ring of regeneration in that pile, yeah, guess who's wearing that? The goblin lord. Hey, there's a there's a plus two battle axe. Uh, the hobgoblin's got that. There's a wand of fireballs. Yeah, the NPC mage has that, right? <clears throat> so the other thing I found is that if the players are the ones who have in your combats most of the magic, tech, powers, etc. Even if a, even a sci-fi game, a modern game, if the players are the ones with all the fully automatic weapons, the best body armor, all the hand grenades, um, you know, <laughs> the, the Browning 50 cals mounted on Humvees. If those are the if the players have all that stuff and your encounters tend to be, you know, thin-skinned, you know, insurgents with AK-47s, you might want to step that up a bit. Throw a couple RPGs in there, um, add some other heavier weaponry and so forth. You can level that playing field, right? Um, if the players the the CR concept basically says you know, hey, all things being equal, this is about right. Well, sometimes the players have shit that isn't quite equal, which, again, is one of the reasons why I, I'm not a big fan of balance. But don't be afraid to load your bad guys down with an average or maybe even a fair amount of stuff. You have, uh, there are horns in uh, various different <coughs> excuse me, versions of D&D. You blow them and it will summon warriors. Or you've got magical healing and all this, all these things. Give some of that cool shit to the bad guys and watch them use it, and that will, in my opinion, my tactical combat, it changes the it changes the entire footing. So we haven't even gotten into like actual physical footing, but that just changes the power structure. Right now, we're just chatting about you know the players have a certain level of power and tactical things available to them: skills, feats, maneuvers, actions, free actions, you know, sunders, charges, and so forth. All the things available to them are also available to the bad guys. So, Sean, when you have the other thing I, I have found is that sometimes you attack the bad guys on their home territory, as anybody who's ever tried to invade Afghanistan can probably tell you, that it's a really nasty, rugged, rugged country. You read any fantasy books, you try to go after the dwarves in their homeland, it's a son of a bitch. Same with the elves, because this is where they live. Um, when you're running encounters, do you utilize the terrain a lot to help kind of level things out or make things difficult tactically? I do, and uh, I think you have to you have to keep that front of mind. A big open room with your big bad at the other end, and that's it. Is not gonna be. It's not gonna be a drawn out. Your big bad's not gonna have a chance. Ex- <laughs> Excuse me. Exactly. When you're drawing that map, when you pull down a Dyson Logos map or whatever, and you see these rooms. You're like, wow, this room's really cool. One of the cool things about those maps. And Dyson's just amazing. And there's so many good dice uh, map makers out there. And you see those guys, those men and women making maps, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. There are very rarely this large open cavern that has, that you're like, oh, I could put 500 orcs in there all in a line. It, it just don't do that. Strategically place your NPCs, your baddies in the areas. 
when I run a street encounter in um, my Avalon setting, the thieves are hidden, right? The players have passive perception in 5e or make them make perception checks or whatever the system is. If the bad guys can hide and they know you're coming, they do. Um, if there's invisibility and so forth, they utilize that. If there's big boulders, you have <laughs> people are going to utilize cover and on, and those things. And why in God's green earth would you have, you know, the bad wizard sitting on the throne and immediately at the foot of the... It's very cliche. Oh, there's the wizard. There's his ogre bodyguards. There's the troll shock troops. They kind of come rank and file after you. That's okay. But when the players um, get smarter, use a game master, get smarter, everybody gets familiar with the rules. You run a couple of those cliche ones at first, second, maybe third level, maybe. First level, second level, especially with a new game system. Yeah, we're getting this figured out. We're sorting out the rules. Hey, how the how these tactical combat things work? Then start placing people better. High ground is important. Um, fight across the chasm. Don't let the barbarian close, right? <laughs> if there's a chasm that cuts between where the players are coming in and the dais where the sacrifice is happening, the um, the hobgoblins just are raining arrow fire on the party as they try to figure out a way to get it across the chasm. That, that That's a legitimate, you know, pin them down tactic. You go to a more modern scenario, you've got a small group of Delta commandos are trying to get into a place, the bad guys have found them, and they've got them pinned down with, you know, with with automatic weapon fire. I mean, that's that's a legitimate thing that actually happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think also, so I mean, with going what you're saying, Brett, one of the bastard freaking encounters we ran into is where like in a tavern, we got ambushed um, and everybody that was uh, going to attack us were above. Like there was a catwalk around the top. Of like kind of the balcony, right? And they were looking downwards. We're like, God, you know, we're freaking screwed. We're sitting down here and they all have missile weapons and they're just going to be shooting in literally a fish in a barrel. Yeah. And we're like, oh, this is going to really suck. There's a reason why deer hunters want to get up 15 feet in a tree to, to try to tag a deer with a bow because it's fucking hard to try to shoot one on the ground. It's and really the hard. Deer can't, and the deer can't get you. No, they can't because they will fucking get you any chance they get. They're, they're 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 trying to take over the world. And Brett's climbing a tree to get away from him. Exactly. That's why I pack heavy weapons as well. Anyway, but but your point is well, your point's that, valid. I mean that that's terrifying, right? You're in a you're in an inn or in a, in a mod, even like a shadowrun setting. You're down there. Your shadowrunners in there doing a thing. All hell breaks loose. You look up on the catwalk where everybody's dancing. The trench coats are open, and all the automatic weapons come out. Son of a bitch. I mean that's that's ugly. Even the perception of it being this horrible thing can uh, can throw the tactical uh, components of the combat around. But put some put some things in there that'll prevent them from rushing you. Right, they got to climb over, jump over, move around. So that's and then also those things that they have to jump over, move around, also provides cover. Yeah. So absolutely. now it's going to make make your party members harder to hit, vice versa. Some of that will go both ways, right? But, you know, if you are planning and if it's planned um, and they know that your your baddies know the terrain, um, the player's going to be thrown off. They will seek cover for sure. Yes. They'll, they'll seek ways to um, overcome your encounter. But, you know, you put out some meat in front of everybody and have a spellcaster in the rear <coughs> and just lobbing 
goofy spells from behind and picking off your fighter um, and annihilating the big threat or neutralizing the big fighter threat, man, you, a fighter, player character's fighter may be bad news, but nothing's worse than getting your doc used to doc says doc would do this. He would love to summon a a bear, a grizzly bear or a black bear uh-huh. and then place it behind everybody. Right. So you have like, Oh, 60 feet or whatever the range is for the summon and plop it behind all the big, bad fighter front line, and then go up and hug, hug the spellcaster. Exactly. And then Come try here. to see, and then try to see the spellcaster try to cast a spell while it's grappled by a bear. Yeah, that's that's rough. For when I, all all, now, uh, all all stories about that say that's difficult to do. And the opposed the opposed checks. I mean, your your spellcaster's S O L, man, because you're not gonna counter a grapple from a bear. No, and that it it goes the other way too, right? So yep. your NPCs, your monsters, whatever it is, if they have even in a Shadowrun game. If you're fighting a, if you're dealing with a bunch of seasoned veterans of multiple combats, they understand magic, they know what's available, and they go, "That son of a bitch is a street mage, get her." They know what's dangerous. It doesn't take like five fireballs before the goblins go, "Oh, I guess that mage is dangerous." Fuck that! If you got fifty goblins hoarding around the room, one big old fireball goes off. The chieftain's like, kill that thing. The one that just did the wooga wooga and dropped the big ball of fire and killed half the group. Kill that thing. You know? So I've had players like, oh, you're always going after the spellcaster. I'm like, you're dangerous. The first thing you did was you showed up, you threw like three lightning bolts and a fireball. Yeah. The drow, they know you're dangerous. They're magical. They understand what that is. They go after your ass because they take you down. Then they quote unquote only have to deal with fighters. Those things they could pick off from a distance or try to negotiate with. But excuse me, even if the bad guys don't have magic and power, if they are smart, and this is the thing some of our listeners have talked about too, is it comes down to the intelligence. Um, and even if it's just animal-like cunning, um, badgers, wolverines, animals don't always just charge right in. They they growl, they snarl, they back off, they look for ways to get away. And your bad guys, if they are smart and they see that dude in full plate armor, visor down, great sword glowing. He has the holy crest of Palor on his chest. And he's screaming for Palor or death, and he charges into the room. Um, hmm, I think the paladin might have to be taken out, or he's really dangerous. Run away from him and go beat up the thief. Go after the mage. Go after the squishy thing with no armor on. Not, <laughs> not every bad guy, be it an ogre, or a troll, or whatever, is going to just go. Oh, I have to go fight the toughest thing because it's for honor. Bad guys are bad guys. They don't necessarily have a ton of honor. So going after this short, stocky, squishy thing that screams and bleeds is a lot easier than the you know tall, heavily armored thing that you have to wail on for a half hour to, to get anything squishy. So slow, just another thing to be done. Hey, bonus points for Wooga Wooga. Oh, thank you. Wooga Wooga. <laughs> Brett's terminology, Wooga Wooga. Oh, wooga Wooga. Last so week it was zip zaps. I, I, this week it's wooga wooga. Zip zaps and wooga wooga. That's what it all comes down <laughs> to, kids. But I re- it's it sounds now to Walt's question. You know how do I do this? I'll tell you, man. It comes a lot of it comes with practice, and it is difficult to come up with this stuff on the fly. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna throw yeah, fuck you, I drop a tree on you. Oh, there's a the goblin hacks down one of the large trees, or they they burn they start the forest on fire because that will do something. Um, 
or the bad guys start shooting bullets at all the lights to, to you know, make the room dark, so you all have to fight in pitch dark. These things only being able to do it ad hoc and so on just comes with practice. And as much as I don't always take notes and like hardcore write down all my prep for an encounter, if you've got a really cool encounter, if you've done the work, Walt, that you talked about here, like, hey, I want to see what this combat's going to look like, don't be afraid to then sit down and say, what would these guys do? What would these NPCs do if things go bad? Even something as simple as, fuck it, they run away. <laughs> Talking about things that would drive players nuts is when the bad guys flee with a bunch of loot and, you know, they're just sacks of experience points for some players. You know, big bloody sacks of experience points and loot. And that bloody sack of experience point loot just ran off and fled. You can't get it. You know, it either runs so far away you can't find it, down a hole, or you got to chase the little bugger. That's that's just flat annoying. And again, it's it's a tactic. A tactical thing to not have to stand and fight to the death. Make yourself a little bullet point list saying, here's some things I think might be fun in this room. Keep the players across the ravine. Use cover. Even those type of statements, the simple thing says use cover, attack the wizard, um, stay away from the fighter. You know, um, or use the, if you're playing a D&D game, as we tend to use as a reference point for many things, use the racial hatreds that are out there. Orcs hate dwarves and elves. If there's an elf in the party, have the orcs just go fucking nuts and try to murder the elf. Because that's just what they care about. They see a pointy-eared thing, they want to kill it. Kobolds go after the gnome. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, they hate you. They have a racial long-standing hatred against you. Um, if you have, uh, in a sci-fi game or whatever, you can have different, you know, people from Alpha Centauri, don't like people from Earth, they don't like people from wherever. That's a thing that can be done. But anyway, the point is, is note card it down. It doesn't have to be long. If this happens, then this, then this, then this. It doesn't have to be a big two-page write-up, but just simple bullet points of use cover, keep the players pinned down, um, rake them with automatic gunfire while the street wizard prepares a spell. Keep those little notes on, on the side. <coughs> and even if it's a a blanket set of those that can be handy. You could pin it to your GM screen where you say, hey, use cover, high ground, you know, benefits of terrain, um, grapple, sunder. Having those words and phrases and an easily referenceable thing ticks your brain. You go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go break that bastard's sword because of, you know, the bad guys have had enough. So the ogre lumbers up and smashes his blade or whatever. That's just one way. That I've seen other players do it, or excuse me, other game masters do it, and I used to do that myself. Is just bullet point lists of like things that would kick kick in my brain, saying, "Oh yeah, this was a thing I thought would be cool to do in, in any fight." Make sense, John? Yeah, does make sense. So, how do you keep yourself? Now, that's that's kind of my my uh, twenty five cents or fifty cent piece there on on this stuff. So, when you want to make your combats more, your tactical stuff cooler do you do a bullet point list you just rely on your experience or or what the situation holds what do you what 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 drives you what drives you man and i'll know the uh creatures abilities and powers and some of those traits so you know if they're just hacker fighter plebes then you know it's pretty straightforward they have weapons and they have attack and but if they have a special special ability then you got to know that you want to use it spellcasters you're going to want to know what spells they have and which ones you can cast before the party enters the room 
So if somebody always questions you like, why is all your wizards and spellcasters always prepared before we get into the room? Well, I don't know. Make a perception check on your end, GM, uh, and see if they've heard the party coming. And if it's around, you know, cast mage armor, I'm sure they they can cast that before the party enters the room. So when the party does get into the combat, wow, you've got mage armor already cast. So I think it's more knowing who the players are in the combat on, from the GM side and what mm-hmm. they can do um, or what they can't do. So if I knew that they can do X and Y or they've got, oh, this one can heal, great, I don't want... Or everybody has a healing potion. Good, good to know. So if they start getting below half, I'm going to have them chug a potion or whatever. So it's just knowing what is at my disposal the other when thing it comes they, to NPCs. I'll tell you, I, I had uh, I had one time where I believed I understood how a mind flare would tear somebody's brain out of their skull, and I misread the rule because I didn't check it beforehand. I'm like, ah, it's not that hard to do. Yeah, I fucked it up, and I should have torn out Beta's character's brain like four rounds in. But he ended up living because I fucked it up. So, a bane upon me. Uh, anyhow, the point is is that read that stuff, know it. If you've got a cool monster with a special skill or NPC with a special power spell, magic item, tech, psionics, whatever. i tell you, the other thing that goes with that, Sean, is it brings to mind uh, the combinations idea, right? You may have mm. a pack of you may have a street samurai scenario um, with a with a decker and blah 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 in a shadowrun game, or you've got you know heavy armor and whatever in a modern style, and then you've got somebody who's a sniper, you've got somebody who's a medic, you've got these different skills, and you watch the players do it all the time, right? The players have hey the cleric the fighters go in first, they pin it down, the cleric is second line, the fighter the mage is in the back with a ranger as a rear guard. The players are thinking like this all the time. No reason that your monsters especially shouldn't be operating in a similar vein. I uh, one point I had a pack of um kobolds that had rust monsters as pets. And the kobolds was all like leather armor and so forth. And um what they would do is the the ones that kept the uh rust monsters as pets would drive them forward with sticks at the party. And then once they got far enough away, then the other kobolds would show up with their arrows and start lobbing, you know, metal shafted arrows at them. But the uh the ones that kept the uh, the rust monsters always wore leather and never had any metal on them. However, that was a tactic they devised, saying, "Hey, if these suckers go out there and take the armor off these guys, they become soft, squishy things that scream and bleed, which is really nice to have when you're kobold, anyway." So don't be afraid. Those combination components too. You know, if the ogre is there, what would how would an ogre that works for hobgoblins? How would they pair up? How would they team up to be the most effective fighting force you can get to? in a tactical scenario. That's another thing to think through. And again, in your bullet point list saying, you know, when ogre's fighting, the shaman is constantly buffing the ogre. Why not? He's got a tank. You know, hey, bull strength, cat's grace. I just keep nailing that. And the next thing you know, you got a super ogre. Oh, enlarge. Why not? I, shit. <laughs> it gets worse and worse. And those are things, again, how do they com- how do they combo up? So some initial thoughts around this. Sean, you got anything else, man? No, but I will end this uh, by saying it's good to have these encounters and think of everything we just said, as well as what we'll have, like people like Blake will chime in uh, and Crim Fan. Uh, we'll read those on the next uh, random encounter as a follow up to the show. But 
Don't do this for every single encounter you ever throw at your player characters because then it gets to be a little bit too much. You're going to have combat encounters where you want them to walk through the stuff. That's fine. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Or that they're going to go up against creatures that don't have the cool tactics that a, uh, a big mastermind would have, right? I mean, you might have a pack of wolves. Yeah, they may surround you and kind of do that pack of attack type of approach, but you know, does every creature that you're going to throw at them know what flank does and have those kind of goofy tactics? Yeah, the green, the green slime that, and the yellow mold don't usually pair up as a uh, massive killing team in the dungeon. You know, that, that doesn't exactly happen. right. So some of your, some of your tactics may even be before the big bad, right? So you're wearing them down going through the dungeon. And so when they do get to your big bad and they haven't rested and they're not all a hundred percent, that, may also come into play when they attack your NPCs and run into your counter. So also on the flip side, if you've got a great encounter, it's a CR 10, for example, and you've got a CR, I don't know, five party or, you know, an average party level of five, fifth level, maybe your 10th level CR uh, NPCs aren't a hundred percent because maybe they've been worn down. Yep. So they, the, the part, that's a cool thing. Cause the party may freak, but they don't know your, your baddies are like, <laughs> like halfway down in hit points. Yeah. The giant's blind in one eye. Can't see out of the other. The other one has horrible indigestion. I mean, there's ways, there's ways to tweak and make it easier, but I think you make a very good point, Sean. It is, it is a good piece to kind of walk out of the section on is that don't do this every time that way lies madness. You will go fucking insane trying to maximize every every combat into a you know Patton versus Rommel tactical battle of wits you don't have to do that um some combats are throwaways and that's fine <laughs> sometimes the throwaway combat turns crazy because a lucky die roll or something but that's right. fine but these big ones um or the more impressive ones when you've got a combination of stuff you put some time into designing it this these are some thoughts that we've got around it but otherwise you're right Sean you don't want to do it every time you'll go crazy yeah. Thanks, Walt, for bringing it up. Uh, thanks, everybody who's chimed in and will be chiming in. We appreciate it. Um, let's get into that roll. Let's do it. All right. Brett's got a few. I've got one and a couple from listeners. Brett, go ahead. So the first one up is the Yellow King role-playing game, Robin D. Law's latest role-playing game. Uh, design- Yellow King or King in Yellow? The Yellow King. I'm, oh, I'm it's the Yellow right King. The Yellow King. Oh. If you look up the King in oh. Yellow, you will not find it. You look up the Yellow King role-playing game, you will find oh. it. Okay. It's already funded. Uh, they had, well, we got uh, 1,108 backers. Um, yeah. There was a 29000 almost a $30,000 goal, and they're almost at 115K, so... Uh, I like this. I like, I love the King in yellow and, uh, like my Cthulhu mythos. I like Robin laws and all this stuff. So yeah, put some money in there. We'll see what happens. I know a few other gamers of mine did too. So we'll see. Should be good stuff. Anyway, link in the show notes. Check it out. If you are at all interested. Um, the other piece I have is a bit of sad news. Uh, Stuart Vike, um, co-owner, co-creator of, the uh, White Wolf, Vampire the Masquerade, and so forth. I remember seeing Stuart's name all over everything when I was getting that game. He died very, very recently, very young. I don't. I think he was like 49. Uh, the one story I read, he had had a light fencing workout with some friends and then dropped over dead. 
has a wife and a couple and at least I think like a three-year-old daughter or something. He's very, very sad. Um, guys like uh, Matt Forbeck and Ken Height were like, oh my, I know this guy. I've hung out with him. You know, we're, we're friends. We're, you know, uh, very, very sudden, which is just sad. So that sucks. Uh, condolences to Stewart's family and uh, fans. I mean, that's, it's just sad when that type of thing happens. Far too young. Uh, the last piece I have on a slightly happier note is we were talking about Purple Sorcerer before, and I want to call this out because these guys are awesome. I love their tools. They had a free tools pledge drive. I think it's still going on. Uh, pledge drive for 2017. Basically, you know, they do all these free tools, and it does take them some time and effort to get things going. So they've got a little um, where you could just throw them a couple coins, a few bucks here and there, and just help them keep things keep things rolling. They got a couple different goals out there: uh, additional character sheets. DCC Monster Generator. They want to get to uh, some Mutant Crawl Classic stuff because MCC, Mutant Crawl Classics from Goodman Games is coming. They want to make sure that they've got some funding to help them get their, um, help them build things up. So we love Purple Sorcerer and you should too. So if you feel like it, go out there and show those boys some love because they deserve it. And I think, I think they is John Marr. Yeah. Well, people, people (laughs) write, I mean, people write adventures for them, right? So people write adventures under their banner and so forth. And yeah, I mean, John is like the guy. I don't doubt <coughs> that he probably gets help somewhere. But regardless, Purple Sorcerer is just, they're great. They, they i.e. John. John, we love you, babe. Um, good work, good stuff. And uh, if you can help support John and the Purple Sorcerer, go for it. Over to you. So, Damn the Man, Save the Music, Kickstarter, a role-playing game about music, growing up, and dreaming big in a world that wants to make you small. Uh, 23 days to go after this show drops on the 27th of 2017. Thanks, Evan Rowland, for letting us know. Check that out if you're interested. The Graveyards of Lovecraft Country, a preview, which is a project uh, by Brett Kramer which is interesting. You have to check this out when you click on the link in the show notes. Um, What he's doing is actually looking at Lovecraftian locations and doing more backgrounds about them is my understanding. As a guide to the various cemeteries, graveyards, and burial grounds of Lovecraft country, Markham's Christchurch Cemetery to the Meeting House Burying Grounds in Dunwich and every boneyard in between. That's pretty cool. And because of the support that he has been given from the community and things of that nature, I do I don't believe it's RPG based. I don't know if Brett's in the RPG um, realm if he plays, but I think it's just as uh, probably a literature, um, probably a Lovecraft fan more than anything. But um, what I was going to say is that he's uh, provided like a free sample of like his one of the books he's writing. I think. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a post. preview there's a preview for the project. It's a uh, yeah. five pages of documentation, a little bit of a cover there, but a six page PDF you can get and sort through. I was just looking at it now and again before the show. It looks kind of interesting. That's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Matt Snow lets us know about Transport Canada recalling twenty seven uh, twenty seventeen models of. AT-ATs, or ADATs, so apparently the official Transport Canada is recalling ADATs from the Imperial Star Wars uh, Navy, which is <laughs> pretty interesting. So you may want to check that out if you happen to own a 2017 model ADAT well, walker. I, I, well, they've had a problem with hydraulics for years on that model. I just can't believe they didn't change it out after the issues of 2016. 
Yeah, and I always thought it was the uh, motivator, but apparently it's it's probably the hydraulics. I don't know. It is, it's hydraulics, clearly. Yeah. Jim Fitzpatrick's, uh, Fitzpatrick has an article on Medium on how to put those punk-ass adventurers in their place, which is to further help out Walt. And so Jim uh, wrote this article because we were talking about Walt wrote in, and then Jim wrote the article, and now we're doing the podcast. So Jim is actually ahead of the game, and he wrote it on Medium about some of the things that you will want to to do, which is great to read and take to heart on helping you create some harder combat encounters. Hey, punk ass adventures, put them in their place. What's wrong with all that? Nothing. I say. That's right. Hey, we love you punk ass adventurers. Cause we know that everybody that listens to us is not all GMing. So we, we love and we, we jab. Hey, if it weren't for the punk ass adventures, we'd have nothing to do. <laughs> we wouldn't. You have to sit around GM like sure yourself. Would, sure, was someone would come go through this cool dungeon and maybe these great tactical encounters. <laughs> Only had some punk ass adventures. Oh, wait, there's maybe. a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of prep going on if you don't have a lot of if you don't have any players. Very true. <laughs> All right, so Brett, what in the hell are we talking about next week? Well, we've been talking about combat, and I'm like, you know, one of the things that we were hit up with a while ago was mass combat. So we're talking about mass combat. How we've done it in our RPGs a little bit. See what we've done, what tools we may or may not have used, and if we've just w- been winging it all these years, talk about how we've tried to do that. And if it's at all been successful, maybe this will be a cry for help from us, saying, oh my god, we suck at mass combat in our RPGs, please help us, listener base. So we'll see what we get. So gravity is going to be playing a role in that. It might be. Mass, gra- mass I'm, combat. I'm trying to move past that joke. I'm tr- I was trying and to density. move past it. Oh, God. No, no, you won't let me move past it. All right, carry on. All right. Well, hey, this has been another episode of Gaming and BS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all. This show brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest Gary, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason Blaylock, Remy Bellado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Wayne Humphrey, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Mark Tasaka, Tim Shorts, Dan LaValley, C.W. Mellencamp, Craig Huber, Eli Kurtz, The Lost Sailor, Graham Miner, Todd McGowan, Roger Braslett, Mark Misdirected Mark Productions, Old School DM, Jason, Christopher Gray, Finn Ulf, Ray Otis, Merkel Froelich, Eileen Barnes, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Todd Crapper, Michael Parker, Jim Fitzpatrick, Michael Drescher, with Static, Alexander Auerbach, Rodrigo Beowulf, Neil Benson, Ron Blessing, Evan Harrison Cass, Chris Steele, Eric the Hoff Hoffman, Jared Rasher, Stefan Dragonspawn, and Soldiers of Misfortune RPG. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you could support the entire show for an entire month. Head over to gamingnbs.com forward slash Patreon. That's P A T. R-E-O-N. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. This This has been a Litterbox Litterbox Studio Studio production. production.